1: Welcome to The Darkened Hour. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. With me today, Richard Cox. Richard, how are you doing today? Good, thank you, Adam. Good to be here. And we have a special guest, Scott Horton. Scott Horton is the director at Libertarian Institute, the editorial director of Antiwar.com, the author of two books, Full Zeran, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the book we will be elaborating on today. Enough already. Time to End the War on Terrorism. Since 2003, Scott has conducted over 5,400 interviews as the host of Anti-War Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, for which he had won the Angeles Chronicle's Best of Award, uh, Austin Award in 2007 for Best Iraq War Coverage. Scott, thank you for coming on today.
0: Thank you very much for having me, both of you.
1: Um, well, I'm gonna get right to it. Um, in chapter one of the book, you quoted Saul Alinsky uh, the following, quote: that the real action is in the reaction of the opposition, end quote. Osama bin Laden understood this quite eminently. His grievance against the United States was to their military intervention in the Arab nations and on Islam's most holiest site, Mecca and Medina, in Saudi Arabia. His response to the invasion of Afghanistan was to coax the United States into entering the country aggressively and to have a years-long conflict with the United States, spending billions, thereby hurting the U.S. financially in the process. Was this a victory for bin Laden in that regard?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the entire terror war, and I know you're interested in this subject. I'm not exactly sure your stand on on all of these things, but There's always been, from the very beginning, great suspicion about how the 9-11 attack could have happened and that possibly al-Qaeda really was just a front for the CIA all along or for the Saudis and that this was a self-inflicted wound. But I'm kind of a reverse 9-11 truther. I think you can make a better case, honestly, that George Bush and the neoconservatives and uh, the militarists in his government and Barack Obama in his, for that matter, we're all essentially agents of al qaeda and working from the script that the enemy wrote out for them to follow now i'm being facetious there i don't really mean it in that sense but people always ask who benefits who benefits al qaeda benefits this was the plan this is what they were trying to do and you know john miller who had been a reporter for abc news and later became an fbi counterterrorism agent after september 11 he had interviewed bin laden And later he talked with Peter Bergen from CNN or who had been at CNN and also had interviewed bin Laden. And he told Peter Bergen that when bin Laden told him, yeah, me and my boys, we're going to war against the United States of America, that internally he didn't laugh in the guy's face, but internally he said that he scoffed and laughed and, you know, like chuckled to himself that, yeah, you and what army pal? Because what John Miller didn't understand was what you just said there with that a quote from Solovinsky, that in all asymmetric political action, whether it's clever protesting community organizing tactics in the neighborhood in Chicago, or whether it's crashing planes into a tower, the point is to create a reaction that serves your interest. How indeed, as John Miller wondered, was bin Laden and a group of just a few hundred men who were exiled on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan, hiding out in the white mountains out in the middle of nowhere. How were they supposed to wage a regional revolution, turn the entire Middle East upside down, depose all the Kings and El Presidentes and Sultans and potentates that they hated and wanted overthrown. How could they possibly do that? Well, they had to get us to do it for them. And, you know, when I put out the first book, um, I got this criticism somewhat. I tried to make it even more clear. I think I made it clear in both, but I I really tried to make it even more clear in this one that to say that George Bush fell for it and that his government went for it is not the same as arguing for their innocence, that they somehow were just these doe-eyed babes who got played for fools by this wily crafty villain or some kind of thing like that. What bin Laden was counting on was the cynical, dishonest, manipulative corruption and and militarism and imperialism of the Republican Party in power. He was no dummy. He was no caveman hillbilly Taliban from the outskirts of Kandahar. He was the son of a billionaire, had an engineering degree, was, you know, the bin Laden family are the bin Laden group is like comparable to Halliburton in America. It's a massive construction firm with massive government contracts and, and oil company contracts is kind of, this was a sophisticated guy. He knew what he was doing. He was giving W. Bush a crisis to exploit. And uh, in fact, as his son told Rolling Stone magazine in an interview in 2010, in the fall of the year 2000, My father was rooting for George W. Bush. And it was because he saw in Bush the fake tough guy, pretend cowboy, all of this character, that this is a guy, a perfect mark, essentially. This is a guy who will attack and will exploit the crisis and break the country. And what bin Laden thought was the same as the CIA thought in the 1980s, that if we bog the empire down and bleed them to bankruptcy in the 80s it was us working with them against the soviet union then at the end of the day we drive them out and win and however many innocent people got to die between now and then let Allah sort them out that was the Ronald Reagan government position and the bin Laden position in the 1980s and that was the bin Laden position in the 2000s he was trying to replicate the soviet war that had killed a million afghans And bin Laden thought, well, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, right? Who cares about all that? If they're good Muslims, they'll go to heaven anyway. And so, but at the end of the day, we will break the American empire on the rocks of Afghanistan the same way that they helped us do to the Soviets. He, He always neglected to mention the part about American help in the 80s for them. But then what happened? Okay, if Afghanistan was all that bin Laden ever wanted, then as Michael Scheuer, the former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit put it, Iraq was the hoped-for but unexpected gift. Are you kidding me? You're going to get rid of the socialist, infidel, secular, Baathist, Saddam Hussein? The guy in the olive green with the French beret who shaves his chin every morning is going to be the new enemy? You're going to get rid of him for us, too? And then look what happened after that. What does that mean, Adam? If if Afghanistan is all they ever wanted and Iraq was the hoped-for but unexpected gift, Then what does it mean then when Obama goes on and knocks off Gaddafi and does a a half-a-regime-change war in Syria that leads to the rise of a bin Ladenite caliphate and wages a six-year war on the side of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula against their enemies, the Houthis? And this is more – essentially, it's more than bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri could have ever hoped for or wished for. The only thing left would be to go ahead and put a literal bin Ladenite on the throne in Riyadh, or to put Zawahiri on the throne in Cairo. But short of that, America has been reading from bin Laden's script the whole time. The action is in the reaction. Let's give them a crisis to exploit. It's like pulling a string and let it rip. And here we are 20 years later. We killed almost 2 million people. We spent almost $7 trillion. We lost, you know, on the order of 5,000 soldiers, tens of thousands wounded. And what did we get out of it at all? And not even we, forget the American people and our national interests whatsoever. What did the American empire get out of it? Nothing. They got nothing that they didn't already have. A naval base at Bahrain, right? What did they gain? They didn't expand their footprint in any meaningful way. And they have less credibility, less power and influence than they ever have.
1: And in sticking with that, um, it leads into directly well put into my next question. Um, U.S. Ambassador April Gillaspie's conversation with uh, Iraqi President Saddam Hussein mm. seemed as if the United States would not intervene if the Iraqis military invaded uh, Kuwaiti borders. However, Great Britain pressured the United States to become involved because they had a vested interest in Kuwaiti oil, thus mm. precipitating the false accusation that the Iraqi army were going to invade the Saudi kingdom. This led to the farce, uh, the U.S. Congressional Human Rights Caucus, which saw uh, false allegations of Iraqis having outlawed chemical weapons, uh, and of course the suspect testimony that you outlined in the book, coming from Nurse Naria, who spoke about Iraqi soldiers throwing babies out of incubators at local hospital in Kuwait. Meanwhile, Naria was never a Kuwaiti nurse; she was actually the daughter of U.S. Kuwaiti Ambassador, U.S. Uh, Kuwaiti Ambassador Saud Nasser Al Sabah. The ramifications from this was the United States military intervention, which led to the deaths of 292 coalition forces killed, 776 wounded, over 4,000 Iraqis killed, and approximately 75,000 wounded. Greek author and historian Aeschylus once said, the first casualty of war is the truth. Is that what happened here and in most U.S.-led conflicts involving the Middle East following afterward?
0: Yeah, listen... Um... I hate to say it but i wrote a old blog entry one time at antiwar.com you can find it it's called they lied us into war all of them and it's every single war since at least 1812 has been based on official deception of one kind or another all of them uh in this case Essentially, okay, if you, if you wanted to be more conspiratorial about it, you could make the case that they did this very deliberately and that they essentially entrapped Saddam Hussein into this box. I don't think that there's really conclusive proof of that. No one on the inside has ever said that, yeah, that was what we were doing and really confirmed that in any real way. I think the, the simplest explanation is a failure to coordinate among the different departments, the you know commander kernel problem whatever you call that right um so cia and central command in the middle east were telling the kuwaitis to tell saddam hussein to shove it meanwhile the state department was telling saddam hussein yeah we don't care if you invade northern kuwait and take you know move the border essentially as payback for them overproducing from your shared oil wells and refusing to negotiate over war debts from the last war, and so go ahead. And that was essentially what April Glaspie told him, and essentially she admitted it too. While denying it, she also told the New York Times, "Well, nobody thought he was going to take the whole country. The idea was you you have a dispute over the oil fields. Go ahead and occupy the oil fields. James Baker's the Secretary of State. West Texas rules, right? The guy's cheating on y'all's deal. Break their knees. That's the game, you know. But so." Dick Cheney and the undersecretary of defense for policy at the time, Paul Wolfowitz, they were, how do you say it, apoplectic about this? They were freaking out. Paul Wolfowitz was terrified of Saddam Hussein and was predicting Saddam Hussein is going to invade Kuwait, take the whole country. We've got to stop it. And they issued a letter um, warning him not to do it. And But then they thought it wasn't very strongly worded. So they had President Bush write a letter or send a statement, but then they thought that that was too weakly worded too. So they tried to recall that statement and send a tougher one, but it didn't happen. And the thing kind of fell through and it was too late, I guess they decided. And then the invasion happened. Now we know from Bob Woodward, this is all based on primary sources I'm not saying Bob Woodward is the greatest truth teller or whatever, but this is based on all of the men in charge of the national security departments in the Bush senior government at the time that when they met on the night of August the 2nd, they decided we're not going to do anything. We're going to draw the line at Saudi Arabia. We're going to tell Iraq that, man, we don't really care about Kuwait, but you better not invade Saudi or we're going to bomb the hell out of you. Make sure we're clear about that. Everybody agreed. Okay, great break. No problem. The next day, Bush attends an event with Margaret Thatcher in Aspen, Colorado, and Margaret Thatcher says in front of reporters, now you're not going to go all wobbly on me now, are you, Bush? In other words, a woman, the head of our junior partner government in the empire now, called him out for his manhood and said, you're not going to be less of a man than me, a woman, are you? And then his answer to that was choke. Of course not. I can't be right. And Bill Hicks even had a joke about this about how Bush was known as the wimp president. That was the cover of Newsweek, the wimp president. And so, oh no, I got to show everybody what a tough guy I am by doing this thing. And then that night, he said, this will not stand this aggression against Kuwait. And then they spent the rest, and I show this in the book, they spent the rest of the year 1990 refusing to negotiate in good faith with Saddam Hussein his all demands unconditional obeyance and he gets absolutely nothing and there were all different author uh, offers for months and months and it was Murray Wass at New York Newsday did the best job on this but there were other reports too and by January of 91 Saddam Hussein's last conditions for total withdrawal from Kuwait where the Americans have to promise that they will leave the Middle East at some point. And the Israelis have to promise that they will negotiate an independent Palestinian state for the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and end the occupations someday. In other words, nothing. We're talking about nothing promises on a piece of paper with no specifics and not even a real handshake to seal the deal. Just give me anything to save face in front of my generals, so they don't kill me and overthrow me, anything. And Bush said, no, any concession would be a reward for aggression. And so you get nothing. And so he couldn't withdraw without risking his own demise at the hands of his own government by losing that much face. It'd be better to lose a war than just give in without having lost one and getting absolutely nothing for it. And they knew that was his calculation. But after Desert Storm and building up all those forces, now what are they going to do? Have a victory without a war? They're going to accept concessions on his behalf? Not on your life. You know, the stage is set. Now we're going to do this. And, you know, Robert Perry always thought this. And I found a General Scowcroft quote, the national security advisor at the time that I included in the book, seeming to confirm this. Robert Perry always thought that defeating the Vietnam syndrome, that was the so-called mental illness, the widespread, um, you know, lunacy of the American people after Vietnam that they didn't want to fight wars anymore, that, that they had to destroy that. They needed a short, quick, easy, fun war that they could put all over TV with yellow ribbons and American flags and get people excited about intervention again. And it worked. And Bush Sr. said, by God, we kicked the Vietnam syndrome once and for all. America is back. And General Scowcroft said that his specific thing, not just the Vietnam syndrome in the sense of like people's mom and dad not wanting to give their next son off to fight in the next war, not just that, but Caspar Weinberger and Colin Powell had come up with the Weinberger Powell Doctrine, essentially written by the army for keeping us out of war right like the air force and the navy they're down for war all the time why not but the army infantry man they need a break sometimes right uh after vietnam they came up with this thing that was essentially 10 points to keep us out of war you can't have a war unless the whole world is with us you can't have a war unless the american people are you know in super majority support you can't have a war unless you already know how the victory is going to look and you already know it's going to be an overwhelming force overwhelming short victory with a clear end game and exit strategy and all these things in other words here's the army but you can't use it right and then as madeline albright famously said to colin powell what's the point of having this magnificent army if you can't use it right that's their whole attitude about this stuff and so scowcroft explicitly said yeah now even though they had abided by the powell doctrine right they had stuck by essentially powell's rules for a short sweet overwhelming victory that the people support that has uh uh, not quite a clear end game but something seeming like a clear exit victory whatever they had tried to stick to the powell doctrine but the war was so successful and short six weeks long and and you know obviously we've been fighting it for 30 years but at the time is the way it seemed It was so successful based on the Powell doctrine strictures that they decided that now we don't need the Powell doctrine at all anymore. Now we can get in anywhere we want, whether we have an end game or not, we can throw out all these restrictions. So not just have we beaten the Vietnam syndrome out in the neighborhood, but we've beaten the Vietnam syndrome in terms of policy at the Pentagon. And the army's official reluctance to do Vietnam again has now been canceled. And so... It was just a matter of time that 10 more years, and they got the army infantry on the ground fighting in Baghdad, getting sniped from the rooftops.
1: There there seems to be a lot of agendas and explanations coming from uh, a multitude of sides here in the political, geopolitical structure. But what many people don't know um, is the agendas of say the the enemies from afar. Um, And you're one of the very few authors that I know um, in which I'm, I'm quite thankful for. You, you spoke about it in the book. I am um, an elsewhere here. He wrote a book called Knights Under the Prophet's Banner, and this is hardly ever talked about anywhere. And when I read about it in your book, I I was uh, smirking because I said, "Well, here is a real austere uh who knows about the uh, mindsets." of very obscure people. And we don't know much about Zawahiri. We know a little bit about Bin Laden. We know about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, a little bit. Uh, but when it comes to people like Zawahiri, generally people don't know even the, just the name. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a little bit about, I want to hear your explanation for it. Um, in the book, you wrote about a little bit about Nights Under the Prophet's Banner, He speaks about the near enemy and the far enemy. Now, can you explain just a bit further about what Zwahiri was implying here regarding the near enemy and the far enemy?
0: Right, okay, so to go back to, you know, we're gonna have a world, uh, you know, a regional revolution and you're gonna do it for us. The idea was this, that one, the American people or the American empire is already at war against them, they thought. By supporting the Israeli occupations in uh, Palestine and in Lebanon, by supporting the kings and dictators and sultans that tyrannize them and, you know, for example, keep oil prices artificially low to subsidize our economy at the expense of their people while they live in poverty and all these kinds of things. And for that matter the bases in Saudi used to bomb Iraq in perpetuity all through the 1990s, through the end of the Bush senior years and all through the Bill Clinton years. And so the idea was, one, yeah, they wanted revenge. They wanted to fight us. They wanted to figure out how to get us into it. But again, they recognized that they're just a few hundred men and America's a global superpower. And so what are they supposed to do? about a power like this. And so, you know, George Bush wanted the American people to believe that what they have against us is who we are, what we are, where we're from, what we believe, right? The more you love your mama, the more they want to kill you, this kind of thing. But if they were being honest about it at all, like say for example, it wasn't George Bush's son we were talking about here, but someone whose fault it wasn't maybe, And they wanted to be honest about this. You say, well, why would a bunch of guys like this want to attack the middle part of North America? What did we, in fact, ever do to them? Right. And the answer was we were propping up their potentates. Right. What they wanted more than anything. Bin Laden wanted to throw wanted to overthrow King Fahd and Zawahiri wanted to overthrow Hosni Mubarak and take their places essentially, or at least have someone, I don't know if they were that greedy for power themselves. They certainly wanted these sock puppet dictators of the Americans overthrown and replaced with guys like them. And so how are they gonna do that when the American superpower backs their militaries, backs their states and will support them no matter what? So the answer was, we've got to play a long game. We've got to take it to the Americans first. So the point of all of the terrorist attacks through the 1990s was not just to take revenge against the Americans or to scare them away. It was to provoke. The action is in the reaction of the opposition. And so, look, bin Laden told Abdelbari Atwan that he had his men helped with the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia in 1993 where the Rangers and Delta operators were killed and he lamented that bill clinton just said i'm getting the hell out of here i don't care about somalia anyway bush got me in here i don't i got you know all these other things on my plate i don't want to deal with this and and left and bin laden complained to abdel bariyat one said oh man i wanted him to escalate i wanted to create a war of attrition against the americans just like we did in afghanistan only against them this time He didn't care if it was in Somalia or if it was in Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else. He was trying to get America into a war. He was, which, right, like, on the face of it, that sounds silly, right? You want to get smashed by the all-powerful world empire? But then the answer was, yes, that's right. And as bin Laden's son later said, in Clinton's time, America was very smart. He sent some cruise missiles. He said this in 2010 when bin Laden was still alive. He said, Bill Clinton sent some cruise missiles against my father and missed and he lived. But you know what? Now you've occupied Afghanistan for 10 years and you still don't have my father. Better you keep that money for your economy instead of acting like the bull that runs after the red scarf, right? Because the plan was... We'll attack the far enemy first, the superpower first. We'll lure them into Afghanistan. We'll bog them down. We'll bleed them to bankruptcy. We'll force them out of the country the hard way and out of the region the hard way, the same way we did as Soviets in the 1980s. And then we can try to wage our local revolutions and create our bin Ladenite caliphate where all these modern nation states now sit um, without the Americans here to back them up. Now, the joke here, of course, right? is that at the time of September 11th, there were only 400 of these guys. They didn't have a prayer of overthrowing the king of Saudi Arabia or the president of Egypt or anybody else. They needed the United States to turn the region upside down, to radicalize the people, especially against their American-backed sock puppet dictators in their politics and to radicalize them in a religious sense as well and you know touch off this massive sectarian war and all these things are massively productive for their movement and so our economy is a lot more productive than the soviet union's economy was and we can obviously keep this going a lot longer but to whose benefit i mean look at who the official enemies are right now i'm skipping ahead a little bit in the story here but as i know you know we have full massive sanctions regimes and threats of regime change against Syria and Iran right now against the secular Ba'athist Alawite dictatorship in Syria and the Shiite Mullah's dictatorship in well two-thirds dictatorship in Iran now if these governments were to fall If Syria were to be thrown back into the sectarian violence of the Obama years, especially if the Damascus regime were to fall and that country were to be thrown into total chaos, if the Ayatollah Khamenei and his government were overthrown in Iran and Persia could be thrown into this kind of sectarian violence, there's no one in the world who wants this more than Ayman al-Zawahiri, probably not even Benjamin Netanyahu. And that's why... When Jeff Huber, right before Jeff Huber died in 2011, one of his last articles was called Bin Laden, dead and loving it. And it was about, he starts off, he says, eat your heart out, Charlemagne. Et tu, Julius Caesar. How do you like them apples, uh, Anthony? Um, because Osama Bin Laden is the greatest military figure and leader in general in world history. There's no one man who has been able to move these massive armies across the entire face of the earth on these, as he put it, these worthless, endless goat rope missions. To bog down and destroy his enemies without even possessing an army of his own, of any kind. Here he is hiding in the attic, even from his own wife, and having fever dreams of a caliphate he could never achieve and then America goes and does it all for him, more than he could have ever wished for us to do. And we're not done yet, but then when we do finally go, guess what? Of course, every regime in the region has been destabilized, right? We've had an entire Arab Spring, we've had governments you know, overthrown hither and yon, and we've had any government that is a known sock puppet of the Americans, a known close ally of the Americans in the region, completely discredited for all time you know our local sultan what's his name the guy who's best friends with the americans who destroyed iraq who who they bribe him with billions so that he can live a corrupt lifestyle and rule over us in tyranny all of that is as plain as it could ever be you know more than it ever was before
1: i'd like to visit back to chapter one because we now explained the reasons why for the arabs or the Islamists to want the US to military invade. Um, under the chapter New Order, you, you, you spoke about um, the rise of the neoconservatives. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz, the Undersecretary of Defense Planning and Policy, constructed uh, the Defense Planning Guidance, or commonly known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine. Uh, this was later revised by Louis Scooter Libby, um, who was then the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Now, the planning document outlined was to have the United States as the sole superpower after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 79, um, following the Afghan war, by expanding its military borders into the Middle East, Southeast Asia, for which would help inaugurate a new American century. However, the plan was not supported at the time and was later revised in the Bush Doctrine after the 9-11 attacks. Was this influenced, all of this? Uh, by former National Security Advisor, Underquarter Zygmunt Brzezinski's Grand Chessboard?
0: Well, you know, Brzezinski and the neocons had severe differences about this stuff. I mean, Brzezinski was much more a hawk on Central Asia, wanted to focus on Afghanistan, and I'm almost certain was outright opposed to the invasion of Iraq. He certainly was constantly talking smack about the neoconservatives, and by name... And you might remember that in 2007, when uh, the Ehud Olmert government and Dick Cheney were in conspiracy working to try with with David Petraeus working to try to gin up an excuse to uh, start a war with Iran, that in 2007, when Uh, Dick Cheney and Ehud Omer and the neoconservatives were really – and David Petraeus – were really working hard to see if they could gin up a war against Iran and strikes against Iran. They were even saying, that maybe we'll just get the Israelis to start it. David Worms or Dick Cheney's man was actually leaked, and this was confirmed three or four places that um, Dick Cheney is considering having the Israelis attack Iran in a way that would force – have them bomb the Natanz nuclear facility in a way that would force Iran to retaliate against American interests in the Gulf, as they put it, as an end run around President Bush to force him into the war. Well, right around at the time, this is in spring of 07, at the height of the tension against Iran. And Zbigniew Brzezinski testified before the Senate that if Israel launches planes to attack Iran, George Bush should shoot them down over Iraq. And the senators are like, oh
1: my God.
0: And Brzezinski is like, listen, Israel and America are different countries with different interests. It's not in our interest to have a war with Iran. Are you crazy? We're going to be fighting from the Mediterranean Sea to India without a break in between. You think our army can bite off that much and chew it? You're crazy. And yes, if that means killing Israeli F-16 pilots, if they dare try it, then yeah, kill them, said Brzezinski. That's not Richard Pearl and Benjamin Netanyahu's, man. That's his – he's got his own bad ideas about world empire, but they're not Likudnik-based ideas. You know, his idea is essentially still the, probably more in line with what the neocons wrote in that defense planning guidance, which is not as Israel-centric, which is about this arc of crisis and figuring out a way to exploit destabilize, destabilized countries in the Middle East and in Central Asia especially – in order to dominate, as they put it, the world island under these old kind of British doctrines of Alfred McKender, that you know, America, like Britain, is a naval power. And so, how do we control Eurasia? We got a lot of bases in Western Europe, and we've got a lot of bases in Eastern Asia. But what do we do about the center landmass here? How do we dominate the wheat fields of Ukraine? How do we keep The Russians out of everywhere except Russia. And that is, we got to be there instead. And I think that, you know, is much closer to reflecting Brzezinski's uh, priorities. Whereas, frankly, as, as he understood and was frank about at times, the wars in the Middle East were not fought for American imperial interests. They were fought for the Israelis. This is what Israel wanted. This was the push from the Likud party Mostly Benjamin Netanyahu's faction of it. Ariel Sharon really just wanted to do everything he could to get us to attack Iran first. But Netanyahu was really – was a clean breaker and really thought, no, we want to do Iraq first. And he was – even though Sharon was in power, Netanyahu was the one who was closer to the neoconservatives in the United States. And then they promised Sharon that, don't worry. Once we do Iraq, we're going to go to Syria and Iran too anyway. And so Sharon and his government got on board for it, and I list a thousand evidences in there. Even Condoleezza Rice's right-hand man, uh, Philip Zelikow, the guy who took the primary responsibility for writing the 9-11 report, said – I have a giant block quote there. He's very frank about it, that it's not oil, and it's not just American military interest. The reason we went to Iraq was for Israel, and because of the neoconservative – and he wasn't a neocon. He's like considered more in the realist camp, I guess – and that because the neoconservative priori- conservatives prioritized Israeli interests, and that was why we did it, as he put it, to protect Israel, as though they needed protecting from Iraq, which is a joke, but still.
1: Well, a short follow-up question to that. Is, uh, is our relationship with Israel becoming a detriment for uh, the Middle East and Southeast Asia and for hegemony in the future?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, even from the point of view of the American empire, israel is a counterproductive albatross you know from the point of view of the american people and our national interest they are nothing but a negative in virtually every way and september 11th would have never happened if it wasn't for israel's policy in the middle east you know i saw this great video one time i wish i had saved this it's a jewish guy from brooklyn new york and he's doing a thing debunking the bombs in building seven and he's going, there's not bombs in Building 7. It wasn't the Israelis. In fact, I think the frame of it was like he was really interested in this stuff. And he was kind of going down the Building 7 rabbit hole. And then he realized he figured it out. Hey, guys, it wasn't the Israelis planting bombs in Building 7. It was the Israelis killing kids in Lebanon that motivated Egyptian engineering students into volunteering to work for the Saudi terrorist to hijack our planes and crash them into our towers. And the North tower hit the building seven and, that's, and it burned all day and that's why it fell. Yes, it was because of Israel. No, it wasn't because they put demolition charges on every little column, that's not what happened. It was because they were killing innocent people with our money and with our diplomatic protection and making Americans a target for their wrath. And so in 1996, when Shimon Peres launched Operation Grapes of Wrath in southern Lebanon, Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, filled out his last will and testament, which was essentially him joining the army, right? That's in his dedication that I'm fighting in this war now. This guy's 22 years old at the time or something, filling out his will, right? Then just a few months later, Bin Laden puts out his original declaration of war against the United States, where he goes on and on about Operation Grapes of Wrath and particularly the Kana massacre that happened two days after Atta had signed his will. Two days later, the Israelis bombed a United Nations shelter that had, I guess, with an artillery shell and killed 105 Lebanese women and children. And when bin Laden put out that statement, that was when Mohammed Atta and his buddy Ramzi bin al-Sheib Said, let's do this. Let's join Al Qaeda. And the next year, they traveled to Afghanistan and were recruited by bin Laden. You guys got visas in Germany, in the West? Cool. We could put you to use. And the next thing you know, it's bin al Shib helped coordinate the whole damn thing. And Muhammad Atas, the lead hijacker, flying the first plane into the South Tower. Was it the North Tower they hit first? I forget. Uh,
1: uh, the North
0: Tower. Yeah. yeah. Hit the North Tower there. Yeah. The second one to fall, the first one to hit. Um, and uh, and so the rest is history, right? It wasn't American bases in Saudi Arabia bombing the Iraqis for Mohammed Atta. And, but how do you explain this? Can you imagine George W. Bush giving a speech where he goes, listen, what happened was some Egyptian engineering students studying in Germany wanted to kill us because of what the Israelis was doing to the Lebanese. <laughs> right? right. Or we're doing the Lebanese. Huh? Uh. That's the answer. That's the answer. That's how Building 7 fell, was the Israelis were murdering women and children in Lebanon, and they got us attacked by al-Qaeda. And look at the whole war since then, man. I mean, first of all, the whole clean break doctrine against going at, or for going after Saddam Hussein has, is absolutely contrary to the interests of a war against al-Qaeda-type terrorism. And we can discuss the clean break in more detail in a minute if you want. But it was essentially an Israel-centric policy. And then ever since then, We've been fighting on bin Laden's side because by the end of 2005 and the beginning of 2006, they realized that as much as they hate Iran, they just put Iran's best friends in power. You know, essentially Sistani outsmarted them. In July of 2004, the Ayatollah Sistani said, if you believe in God, I want you to go outside and demand one man, one vote. And so every Iraqi Shiite went outside and said, one man and one woman, one vote. You promised democracy, we're here for it, pal. Well, this is the supermajority of the country. And Bush wanted to set up a little sock puppet caucus system, this and that. Uh-uh. Zwar, uh uh. Sistani said, you want to start this war all over again against the supermajority population who stood by and laughed as you got rid of Saddam for us? And Bush said no. And so then after that, it was the Supreme Islamic Council who'd been living in Iran for 20 years that wrote the Iraqi constitution. It was the Supreme Islamic Council, and the Dawa Party, and the Sadrists who won the January 2005 election with the Purple Fingers and inaugurated the entire civil war, which America fought on the side of the Iraqi Shiite supermajority, the best friends of Iran, against the Sunni 20% uh, Sunni Arab minority, and including cleansing them out of the capital city and creating this entire new almost kind of nation state of Iraqi Shiistan. And so... That wasn't how it was supposed to work, Adam. They were supposed to lord it over the Shia and then they were going to be able to use their control and influence over the Iraqi Shia to lord it over the Iranians. Well, now all they did was import the Iranian Revolution into Iraq. Oops. So then they launched the redirection that said, we got to make it up to the Saudis and yes, of course the Israelis. It's not a coincidence that is Elliot Abrams helped leading this push the same guys that lied us into war then turn around and say you know what we really did screw up and the sooner we recognize that the better and then we'll turn it around the redirection means we tilt back toward the saudis but as you know the saudis don't have a real land army they only have al-qaeda terrorist shock troops so tilting back towards the saudis means supporting the muslim brotherhood in syria fatah al-islam to try to attack the the um uh, Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, Jundallah head shopping suicide bombing terrorists in Iran, and then um, once Obama comes in, this is the same policy that he pursued, at the urging, of course, of the Saudis, but also especially the Israelis. As Jamie Rubin, uh, Hillary Clinton's former advisor from the Bill Clinton years, wrote in Foreign Policy magazine, which was actually an adapted version of a memo he wrote to her privately. That we got from wikileaks that the real reason to intervene in syria is because israel is worried about iran arming hezbollah by way of syria and syria is the keystone in the arc of shiite power which now includes baghdad so if we gave them baghdad we got at least take damascus away from them and so now you have from at least to 2006 on, but forget that, even the redirection from the Bush years, from 2011 on, in the Obama years, you have America at Saudi and Israeli behest fighting outright on the side of the bin Ladenite terrorist enemies of the American people, the butchers of New York City, the worst part of the Sunni-based insurgency from Iraq War II that fought the Americans and massacred Shiite civilians. Because Iran is the enemy of Israel. Iran arms Hezbollah, which doesn't really threaten to invade Israel, but can has the power to keep Israel out of southern Lebanon, to limit their freedom of action as they complain. And so here the American state is – we're not talking daylight here. We are talking night and day. The American people's policy is wanted dead or alive. The butchers of New York City. Kill Al-Qaeda. Keep us safe from Al-Qaeda. The American government's policy is back Al-Qaeda because Israel and Saudi hate Iran more. And their priority is serving the interests of these foreign powers above the interests of the American people. It's a 100% contradiction. The only way they get away with it? is by saying, you know, terrorism over there with them Arabs and whatever, and don't you look too close at the borders, and don't you try to figure out who wears the black turbans and who wears the white ones, and don't try to figure out who's on whose side. All through Iraq War II, they said, well, it's us and the Iraqi people fighting for democracy versus the terrorists who are trying to thwart it, right? When that wasn't the line at all. The line was we're on the side of the Shiite supermajority and their allied 20% Kurds against the Sunni Arabs. That's where the lines are, and then until they switch for a little while and so forth. But they never explain, because if they explain, then the American people would see that what Saudi wants and what Israel wants is directly contrary to the interests of the American people.
1: Let's go back to what you gave a little bit of interest in explaining about, which is the clean break. Um, 1996, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm, which was authored by – some of the more stricter neocons in the State Department. Uh, yeah, David Wormser, Wormser was the primary Fied, author. David Wormser, Douglas mm-hmm. fight Richard Pearl. Uh, just give us a brief explanation as to how sure. this, what this document entails and how it's being influenced in uh, today's politics in the Middle East.
0: Right. Okay, so first of all, it's a completely harebrained scheme. The, the original premise is we don't want land for peace. We don't want Oslo. We don't want a deal with the Palestinians. We would rather just achieve a position of ultimate strength in the region. No one will mess with us, and we'll call that peace, rather than having a decent understanding with our neighbors. Which they have a peace deal with the Egyptians and the Jordanians. They could just as easily pursue a permanent peace with the rest of their neighbors. But they said, look, we'd rather just be stronger. And um, so... Part of it was kind of a neoliberal program for getting rid of socialist excess and, uh, you know, boosting the budget and that kind of thing that you would recognize as like a typical austerity type program, you know. Um, But then the rest of it is how to achieve this regional hegemony. And it's completely crazy and stupid. Okay, so everybody picture again the map of the Middle East here as we're talking about. We have this, as they call it, this arc of Shiite power from Tehran. Skipping over Iraq for now, this is 1996, Saddam Hussein is the roadblock here, the Sunni Baathist uh, in the middle there. and then, But then you have Syria, which is run by the Alawites, who are very close to the Shiites and have an alliance with Iran. And then, of course, Hezbollah, which is this mini-state in southern Lebanon, which is run by Shiite clerics, which had grown up in opposition to the Israeli occupation in the 1980s and 1990s. And so this is the name of their dilemma. Okay, Iran arms Hezbollah by way of Syria. So then David Wormser writes and Richard Pearl rubber stamps that this is what we believe. Here's what we want to do. We want to focus on getting rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. But that's crazy, right? On the very face of it, America in the Ronald Reagan years, in the Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan years, had backed Saddam Hussein to contain the Iranian revolution. In a bloody war that killed almost a million people. And then at the end of Iraq War I, when Bush Sr. encouraged the Shiites and Kurds to rise up and overthrow Saddam, he then choked and stabbed them in the back and let Saddam massacre them all. Killed 100,000 people. Used the MEK to help crush them too. Why? It was because they realized they were importing the Iranian revolution they just spent eight years trying to contain that now the Iraqis who had taken Iran's side in the war were coming across the border to lead the revolution. And they went, oh, no. That was why they stayed in Saudi Arabia for 10 years. That was the excuse for it, uh, was to bomb the no-fly zones that they erected in the name of protecting the people they had just betrayed. Right? So um, the, uh, um, by the time the neoconservatives come in in 1996, Uh, there's essentially this status quo, this stasis that everybody kind of agrees is untenable. They already called this guy Hitler a hundred times, and then they set him up to massacre the uprising. They've got it set that um, the only thing keeping him from killing every last Shiite in the South is our no-fly zone, which is not true, right? He'd already put down the uprising. It was already over anyway, but that was the excuse. But then the idea was, and the neocons pushed this the whole time, it was especially reinforced by the fact that Bush Sr. had lost after just one term to Bill Clinton, was that he didn't finish the job. He should have finished the job and gone all the way to Baghdad and done all of this. And so here's the thinking that Wormser explains of how this is supposed to work, okay? We're going to overthrow Saddam, and then that means that King Hussein of Jordan will inherit the throne in Baghdad and rule over Iraq. And then they changed that to instead of King Hussein, it would be his cousin would take over. And what will happen is, see, the Hashemite kings of Jordan are descended from the prophet Muhammad. And our friend Ahmed Chalabi assures us, who's the Iraqi exile, who's uh, all of his guys pushed the weapons of mass destruction lies a few years later um, to get us into the war. Um, Our friend Ahmed Chalabi assures us That the Iraqi Shiite supermajority just love being told what to do, especially by a king who is a descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. And the Hashemites are descended from the Prophet Muhammad. And so what's going to happen is the new Hashemite king will just lord it over the Iraqi Shia. He will have, first of all, he will order the um, religious clerics in Najaf, the Shiite clerics in Najaf to order Hezbollah in Southern Lebanon, to stop being friends with Iran and stop listening to Iran and instead listen to them and do what they say and become friends with Israel and serve Israeli and American interests. And we'll build oil and a water pipeline to Haifa and it'll be great. And so they bought this. And the joke is of course, that the Hashemite line, assuming they're really descended from the prophet Muhammad have nothing to do with the Shiite Islam side of the debate whatsoever. And the Shiites do revere the line of descendants of Prophet Muhammad, but only one certain line. I th- I'm almost certain, it's his son-in-law Ali that led the Shiite-Sunni split. I need to go back and look at this stuff. Mm. But anyway, the point is that the Hashemites are not at all part of that tradition whatsoever. And I have an Iranian Shiite friend that I asked about this that like, okay, well, let's say he was, right? Like, let's say there was an Ayatollah who came and said, okay, Iraqi Shiites, betray your own interests because I say so, and I'm such a powerful and influential religious leader. And he said, they would owe him no allegiance whatsoever. Right? They would owe him respect. but They would owe him no allegiance. It'd be like if the Cardinal of Boston started telling the people of Massachusetts that they have to do this, that, and the other thing. He just doesn't have the authority, the political authority to make them move. That's not the kind of allegiance that he really has. Now, I guess Sistani can say, Hey, I want you to go outside and tell George Bush that we want one man, one vote. But that's not contrary to their interests, is it? That's serving their interests. He's just helping organize it, right? When ISIS is marching on Baghdad and Sistani says, I want all Shiite males to grab a rifle and go outside to defend our city and our country, then yeah, they do that. But that's not because He's God on earth or something. That's just because he's got a lot of authority and he's kind of a rallying point for telling them what they need to hear, what they want to do anyway, right? If he was telling them to all screw themselves over, they wouldn't listen to him. He's, he's not like some kind of – you know, even the pope, right, doesn't get to tell uh, Catholics of the planet what their politics have to be, especially in a way that are directly counter to their own interests. It's just not how it works. So anyway, this is all a pipe dream. This is all completely crazy. And they ended up, of course, in the name of democracy spreading and all of this stuff, they had to replace the Jordanian king and Hussein died. King Hussein died. And I don't know which cousin they were going to use, but they ended up replacing them in the scheme with Ahmed Chalabi himself will now be the guy who was selling them all of this stuff. Now he will be the sock puppet and he will be the one who tells the Shiites what to do and they'll just love it and we'll lord it over Hezbollah in southern Lebanon and make them stop being friends with Iran and we'll lord it over Iran. And Wormser says, and I quote in the book, too, where Wormser writes, I forget, because there's three different essays here. There's Clean Break, Coping with Crumbling States, and then the book-length treatment is called Tyranny's Ally, uh, with a forward by Pearl. And um, But they say, I forget, I think maybe it's in Tyranny's Ally. They're like, yeah, see, and then once we turn Iraq into Shiite-dominated, America-friendly, Israel-friendly paradise... Only then will they be able to rise up to their full height and lord their authority and strength over Iran and bend Iran to our will as well. And the people of Iran will then, under the direction of the Iraqi Shiite clergy and others, will then overthrow their government for us, and everything will be great in Iran too. I mean, this is just completely crazy. I mean, Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Perle and David Wormser would have had to have been absolutely dumb as hell to believe that any of this made any sense at all, but it was just a matter of confirmation bias, right? This guy was telling them exactly what they wanted to hear. And then there's this great article. I'm sure you've read it. I quote it in the book and it's really a hoot to read as sad as the whole situation is ultimately it's called how Ahmed Chalabi conned the neocons. And it's got Douglas Fythe's law partner, Mark Zell, On the record, absolutely screaming and yelling and throwing a temper tantrum and saying, "This guy, he lied to us. He told us that the new Iraq would be a friend of Israel. He told us that the new Iraq would build an oil, oil and water pipeline to Haifa. He promised a lot of things. He said a lot of things. Now he doesn't even talk to us anymore. He won't even take our phone calls. Now he's running around with the Iranians all day. Can you believe that? In other words, these guys are suckers, man, and they got played and. Forgive my French. This is a direct quote. John Desard is the journalist. It's not my language. It's John Desard quoting an associate of Ahmed Chalabi in Jordan. And this man says to John Desard that, and I wouldn't have phrased it this way anyway. Okay, I mean this is, but it's important in the meaning here. Okay, for the context, this guy tells John Desard, "Well, I was really worried." And I was asking Ahmed, what are you doing running around with all these Zionists in D.C.? And he told me, don't worry. I'm just telling these Jews what they have to hear in order to get us into the war. And I'll betray them as soon as it's over. And then I said, oh, okay, great. (laughs) You know, end quote. Something like that, right? This was his reassurance to his friend before the fact. Okay? I'm just jerking these guys' chain. Richard Pearl, as mean as he is, as evil and as devious as he is, sock puppet on an Iranian agent's string. And, you know, they might have known, Adam, that INC headquarters was literally in Tehran. Hmm. Eh? Eh? Hint, hint. Um, and there you go. And then all that happened was they put Iran's friends in power and... Um, And, you know, Chalabi got a job in the oil ministry, (laughs) you know, lived for a few years. I guess he died in like 2015. And and he was the guy who supplied all the liars to say, yep, I worked on Saddam's biological weapons program. I worked on Saddam's al-Qaeda training program. I worked on Saddam's nuclear program, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of that stuff. All of it. Well, virtually all of it. Not the aluminum tubes, but um, even the biological weapons labs. They tried to say, no, curveball, that was separate. No, it wasn't curveball was the brother of one of the secretaries at the inc that was where they got the guy and it was just here's a bunch of money up front tell whoever will listen that you help make biological weapons in iraq they want to believe and they will and these were the guys who lied us into war
1: mm-hmm. going to be daring here and i know we have an allotted hour with you um
0: i actually i don't have anybody next man we can go a little bit over if oh can to. we can we all right yeah, i yeah. have
1: three uh, two, just three questions. Um, You talk about Libya, Um, Hillary Clinton, who was then the Secretary of State under Obama, managed to persuade with help uh, from Susan Rice and Samantha Power to send military aid to the insurgents on behalf of Mahmoud Jibril, who is the leader of the National Transitional Council. However, there were those very high up in the State Department as well, um, including Vice President Joe Biden, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, and the national security advisor, Tom Donlinson, who were adamantly opposed to this idea. Meanwhile, Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan president, wanted a peaceful transition of power to have these sanctions imposed on him and his family uh, revoked. Clinton instead ordered the arming of Al Qaeda affiliates to attack with the full approval of NATO and the U.S. aerial bombardment of the town of Sirte. This led to the eventual capture and the brutal death of Gaddafi. The country now currently is in a sectarian nightmare, leading to tens of thousands of deaths, open-air slave markets, and the resurgence of al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. My question here for you is, why did Obama side with Clinton on this complete travesty, which was a war crime on their part?
0: Man, that's such a great question. I really don't know. And I swear it must be reported in three or four or five different places from different sources telling the tale where you can just picture it in the oval office you have all of the men saying no robert gates the secretary of defense that obama inherited from bush who oversaw the expansion of iraq war ii apparently this is believable it's been reported multiple times that he complained over and over, can we please finish the two wars we're already fighting before we launch a third? The national security advisor and the deputy national security advisor agreed. The, um, and then uh, who am I leaving off? There, there's a whole lineup on the, on the right side there. Uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff also. So we should not be doing this. Then on the other side, you had Samantha Power, Hillary Clinton, and Susan Rice. And in all three cases, their interest was themselves. Their interest was their own power. Hillary Clinton wanted a big, cool, successful war to show this is smart power. Unlike George W. Bush, who screwed up Iraq, she knows how to do it right. This was to be like a campaign stunt for 2016. Of course, by the time she ran for president, she had to pretend the whole thing never happened. It was everybody else's fault, nothing to brag about at all. But this is in Michael Hastings' piece in Rolling Stone about Libya. It's almost unbelievable, except that this is exactly how it works, man. This is what they call the public choice theory, where there's really no such thing as the national interest. There's only the interest of the individual people who have jobs in the national security business, right? So – Samantha power was in 2007 and eight. She was an advisor to Obama, not Clinton. And in fact, she had really screwed up and called Hillary Clinton a monster. So, but guess what? Oops. Hillary Clinton becomes secretary of state in the new government. So that means Samantha power gets regulated to a deputy position on the national security council instead of something powerful. Well, Hastings reported this. It's out of her own mouth and her people. She felt, Adam, that she had done her penance for calling Hillary Clinton a bad name. And she wanted out from under this lousy assignment. I love this part. Of do-gooder, rinky-dink stuff. Like working on protecting Christians in Iraq. She didn't want to do do good or rinky dink stuff like that anymore she wanted a promotion and she wanted a pat on the head and some attention from the boss and so she said this is my chance i'll start a war and it'll be good for me and so she went to susan rice and convinced susan rice what we'll do is we'll say this is just like that time there was a genocide in rwanda in 1994 and we wished we'd intervened Only this time we have the chance. So now the war on terrorism is over. has nothing to do with this anymore. The fact that the guys fighting on the ground are literally al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Ansar al-Sharia, the Libyan Islamic fighting group, bin Ladenite veterans of the old Afghan war and Iraq war II as well, completely irrelevant. We're preventing a genocide. Come on, everybody. So then power and rice went and convinced Hillary Clinton. And that this would be good for her. This will be a big stand we can take. It'll be smart, power at its best. And then as Obama, according to Gates, and Gates is a horrible liar, but I don't know. I like this one, so I believe it. Gates says that Obama told him that his decision to start the war was 51 to 49%, which is nothing less than an admission of a war crime. It's the admission of launching a war of aggression, not 60-40, not 70-30, not 90-10, but 51 to 49, should I launch an aggressive war or not, means that there was no threat, not even to the civilian population of the country, and he knew it. And of course, it turns out that the major propaganda talking point at the time, that Gaddafi was preparing to murder every last man, woman, and child in the city of Benghazi for fun was, of course, a complete and ridiculous and total hoax. He sent a militia of 2,000 men. How are they supposed to exterminate a city of 300,000 people, You know, most of whom had already fled anyway from all the fighting and what have you? Um, The whole thing was an absolute hoax, and they knew it. They lied us into war, no different than the weapons of mass destruction, no different than... The completely fake hoax of the 100,000 Kosovar Albanians that had supposedly been slaughtered by the Serbs in 1999 to justify Bill Clinton's Kosovo War. It was just made up. And in fact, in the Kosovo War, they had 100,000 pretend dead bodies that they imagined already existed and lied and said that already had happened. In this case, they said it's going to happen. We don't even have a pile of dead bodies. Just trust us. There's going to be one if we don't intervene. This is the thinnest excuse for a war ever. Congress never authorized it. The um, House explicitly voted down an authorization for it. And Obama continued anyway for nine months. And then as you say, Gaddafi was ready to negotiate. Gaddafi hated bin Laden. He was the first one to put out an Interpol arrest warrant for Osama bin Laden. The, the British had used uh, the LIFG to try to kill him in the 1990s, and that had their support and the CIA support for the LIFG had been turned off temporarily at the beginning of the terror war, and now they just turned it right back on again, and so they knew that they're back in terrorists the whole time. I mean, and look, we were watching this like hawks at antiwar.com the whole time. So we had all the quotes from the BBC, from the Telegraph, from the Independent, where hell, Patrick Coburn was over there talking to these guys face to face. The leaders of the fight on the ground, these are the Mujahideen. They bragged, this guy Hasidi bragged that, yeah, me and my guys fought in Iraq war II against the Americans there. What of it? Abdul Hakim Belhaj, who's a major potentate in the uh, Tripoli legislature to this day, had been uh, an associate of bin Laden in Afghanistan and had fought in Iraq, had been captured and rendered to Thailand and tortured by the Americans and with the cooperation of MI6. And then after the war... He sued the Brits. Now, there's nothing like a semblance of a rule of law in America. But in Britain, apparently, you can still find a magistrate that'll hear a case like this. So he sued the Brits for cooperating in his torture, and they settled. And this is a guy who was was a bin Ladenite, who is one of the major recipients of the power. His Libya Dawn group has been in play this whole time in Tripoli ever since then and committing war crimes, too, and on their side of the civil war. And then, of course, I mean, there's so many facets to this. You mentioned Jabril. He was the Libyan Chalabi, right? But Chalabi worked on David Wormser and Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz for like eight years. This guy Jabril gets Hillary Clinton in a hotel room for 45 minutes and says, yeah, 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 no, democracy. And she goes, I don't know. Good enough for me. But meanwhile, Libya is a tribal society. You know, there's basically one major dominant tribe in each of the major cities. So as soon as the war breaks out, now it's the Rotten's versus the Zintanis versus the who, like all over the place, hundreds of militias cropping up all over the place to fight. Nothing like a monopoly on force. And you listen to these jerks now. I don't know if you saw this, where Anthony Blinken, Anthony Blinken, um, in his um, congressional, uh, you know, his uh, Senate confirmation hearings says, Yeah, well, you know, the problem was, geez, we didn't really realize that Gaddafi didn't really have a state. So that when he killed him, there was really nothing for anyone else to take over. We had to start from scratch. So that was all Gaddafi's fault, see, because Gaddafi was such a frightened dictator that he was afraid to have a big enough government that it could do without him. So it's his fault that he didn't build up a good enough government for us to put al-Qaeda guys in charge of for them to run well when yeah okay obama famously said libya was a shit show it was the worst mistake of his presidency but read the fine print what he said was i should have sent the infantry i should have invaded i should have conquered the country i should have taken responsibility for building a new state in libya the same way has already had already failed in iraq and he's just mad because he thought the the french and the british were going to do it and then they never lived up to their end of the deal so he wasn't he wasn't regretful that he launched a 51 to 49% unnecessary war based on a lie for Al-Qaeda that turned into an endless civil war of chaos and death and destruction and open slave markets and 10,000 drowned refugees in the Mediterranean Sea and all of this. He didn't care about that. He didn't regret that. He only regrets that he didn't send the whole damned army to North Africa to make it 100 times worse. And then the most famous story out of the Libya war, of course, is the Benghazi massacre of 2012. Wait, oh, I'm skipping a step here. You refer to this too. Gaddafi wanted to deal, and this is in the Washington Times and the New York Times as well, has a, a big two-part series where they allude to a lot of this as well or uh, confirm a lot of this as well. But the Washington Times series is great. Um, it's a four-part series about how the CIA and the military tried to stop the war and Hillary Clinton's State Department overrode all of their efforts. But literally the CIA and the military were negotiating to try to find a peaceful resolution. And then once she put a kibosh on all that, and once the war started, kept it going, and they could have negotiated some of the, there's audio of phone calls of some of these negotiations going on into the summer before Hillary Clinton finally shuts it all down. Well, Qaddafi wasn't murdered until I think October, right? The war lasted nine months. And so, yeah, from February to October is when he was finally lynched. And so, we had all the time to call off the war to figure out a better way. They were negotiating with, with Gaddafi's son Safe. And he had a couple of sons, but this guy Safe had long been, you know, uh, touted by American uh, and, and British reformers, right? Like he was, or as a reformer um, by, by the establishment, he was like, you know, the British Chatham House. Um, you know, the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations and all these type people would say that like, you know, this guy could be a reformer. He actually really is interested in democracy. He's intre- he doesn't want to just inherit a, a kind of royal dictatorship from his father. He wants to help to turn Libya into a real modern nation state and part of the international community, of, which is a nice euphemism for the American world order and all of these things and this is a guy that we could work with so once the war started safe qaddafi is going look man this is not bs this is true listen to me this is al-qaeda on the ground that's who these guys are it's the libyan islamic fighting group that's who this is it's not too late to call it off what we'll do they had a plan they're going to kick the old man upstairs and let safe qaddafi come to power end the war but then hold elections broaden reforms you know include new people into an expanded parliament and all these things right let's figure out a way to do what you say you're trying to do which is create a new democratic libyan state but just like you would think might be the lesson of the last war we still had troops in iraq through the end of 2011 the iraq war ii wasn't even all the way over yet and you think you might have learned the lesson from the last war about how not to do this kind of thing that like maybe saddam's secular dictatorship instead of dropping a virtual atom bomb on it maybe we could have accentuated the secular part and tried to you know with with um you know ironclad protections for religious and ethnic minorities started to open up the process to democracy create a bicameral legislature and a rule of law and uh, and a bill of rights and a whatever whatever maybe america could have worked with saddam hussein on taking his secular government and making, turning it from fascist to more of a democratic state, which by the way, he offered to do. He offered to surrender and to hold new elections. It's all in the book. Um, And they could have done the same thing in in Libya. You You really say that what you're interested in here is democracy and peace and the global community of friendship. Well, a much better bet then the Libyan Islamic fighting group of bin Ladenite suicide bomber terrorists might be Gaddafi's son, who's educated in England and has a real interest in, you know, something beyond his self as leader of his country and trying to do something a little bit better. And where we have all the leverage in the world to work with him going forward too. right? Assuming, assuming the premise of American intervention at all here, for the sake of argument, you understand that – The way that they went about it, was just, it's treason. And they knew all along. We all knew all along. In fact, uh, the former chief of the bin Laden unit, uh, the CIA's bin Laden unit, Michael Scheuer, you should find this clip if you've never seen it. I'm sure you probably have seen. It's hilarious. Uh, Michael Scheuer on CNN in the spring of 2011, and he's being interviewed by two women. I forgot which ones they were. Katie Turr, I guess, is one of them. No, I don't know their names. Anyway, it's the CNN ladies. And he's going, look, man, in any other situation, these men, we would call them the Mujahideen. That's who they are. Like, this is bad. We're not supposed to be doing this. And the lady's like, yeah, but come on. The CIA is over there vetting these guys and making sure that we only arm the right guys. So it's fine. And he goes, no, that's not true. Because, see, the worst guys aren't going to talk to the CIA. But that doesn't mean they're not there. And that doesn't mean that they won't be the ones who inherit the power and have the most influence. See? And they're just like, yeah, but Obama wouldn't be doing this if this wasn't a good idea. And finally, he gets mad at them and says, look, you're just carrying water for Mr. Obama, okay? The fact of the matter is this is horrible and crazy and stupid and wrong, and we shouldn't be doing it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you know, former chief of the CIA's bin Laden unit? You just must not like Mr. Obama very much. And then that's the end of the conversation. But, and this is April at the latest, eh, May at the latest. I bet it's April of, of 2011. Months and months and months before um, Qaddafi is killed. And the the place has been in civil war ever since then. And then I'll keep this real brief. The Benghazi massacres I'm sure you understand, but most people do not understand. The current scandal is a limited hangout. There was not good enough security. The CIA and the military were not allowed to come in and save the day in a timely enough fashion. Obama and Hillary are feckless leaders. David Petraeus, too. Don't forget about him. The head of the CIA went to the movies that night. Um, and this kind of thing okay so those are all criticisms and they're fine but that's not the the scandal at all the scandal was revolves around the question why was ambassador christopher stevens in benghazi not tripoli and the answer is because he was working with the cia and the qataris on a massive mission to funnel these jihadists and guns onto the next war in syria Mm -hmm. and the reason that they killed him was because the Democrats, or the Republicans too, but apparently, especially the Democrats, have this theory. If we just give these guys a lot of guns and money, they'll love us and do whatever we say. But that never works, right? We give them guns and money. They do what we want to. that coincides with what they want, but then they do whatever they want to us too, right? Uh, see, for example, Bill Clinton backing them in Bosnia, Kosovo, and Chechnya, and then them, them attacking us all through the 1990s anyway. Well, here... The CIA is running an operation to help these Al-Qaeda guys travel, you know, take their guns and their efforts on to the next war in Syria. Well, guess what? Another part of the CIA at the very same time is waging a drone war in Pakistan. Now, go back to 2002. Dick Cheney had the CIA and the Egyptians torture a man named Sheikh Ibn Alibi into pretending that Saddam Hussein taught al-Qaeda how to hijack planes and make chemical weapons. And then uh, Colin Powell used that in the UN address to lie us in a war, right? Well, guess what? In July of 2012, the CIA killed his brother. Oh, I, I left out the part where after they were done with, with al-Libi, Ibn al they shipped him back to Gaddafi, who was cooperative with the terror war at the time, who murdered him in his jail cell. We call it Arkanside when somebody kills themselves in jail, um, after Hillary Clinton, uh, Bill and Hillary's you know, reputation. Um, so then, years later, now it's 2012, CIA is in the midst of this high treason working on behalf of our bin Ladenite enemies. While another branch of the CIA is waging the drone war in Pakistan, they kill Sheikh Ibn Alibi's brother, Sheikh Yahya Alibi, mm-hmm. in a drone strike. Well, then Ayman al Zawahiri puts out a podcast. And says, you know, it'd be funny would be if you guys would murder the Americans in Benghazi on September 11th. Anniversary's coming up. And here these idiots have stationed themselves in the middle of our hornet's nest. Let's sting them. And so they did. That's exactly what happened. It was all, I mean, hell, they should have known it was coming. It was, a, he put it out to the public, to the world. And so they thought they were too clever by half. They had everything under control. But their jihadist terrorist allies, it was Ansar al-Sharia who they fought the war for were the ones who killed them and then they made the big scandal about susan rice said that it was a riot over a youtube video that got out of control Mm -hmm. instead of a deliberately planned terrorist attack so what a scandal right she did lie about that and of course hillary made her go on all the talk shows and take the blame for that instead oh she was sick that day i guess um and made made susan rice take the lump for that one which is fine because again she helped push us into that war too she was the one uh at, as un ambassador who did the most to push the lie that Gaddafi was giving all of his soldiers viagra so they could rape their way across libya and rape every woman and girl that they found on their way to murder every last man woman and child in benghazi which was an absolute ridiculous hoax and you know what i'll never forget either driving down sunset boulevard in my little green truck in la and listening to the after Rush Limbaugh clone, right wing, you know, Republican on the AM channel. And of course his spin goes like this, look guys, even Susan Rice is saying that Gaddafi is committing these war crimes and and giving his soldiers Viagra to rape every woman and girl in Libya on their way to Benghazi. So that's how you know it's true. When even Susan Rice, the liberal Democrat, says that this war crime is true, then now all of our right wing Republican confirmation biases are confirmed that it just absolutely must be, which is a ridiculous hoax. You could just as easily spin that the other way. Susan Rice, who worked for Bill Clinton, who, short of George W. Bush, is the worst liar in American history, says that this is going on. That's exactly why not to believe it how are soldiers supposed to fight a war if they're stopping to have sex all that time or you know rape people all the way between missions i mean you're gonna you're gonna get surprise attacked when you guys are not paying attention you know it doesn't sound right at all and the, the evidence for it was nothing of course right it's a hoax perpetrated by the qataris and um and the americans and so um Anyway, so yeah, and the whole thing's a disaster. They've been at war ever since. There's nothing like a monopoly government there. There are two major governments fighting over control, but they won't just split the country back in half. It's only been a unified country, not since World War I, but since after World War II was when it was first unified under a British sock puppet king and then under Gaddafi. And now this. It was always Tripolitania uh, or however, and Cinserencia, I can't pronounce either of them. These two completely separate kingdoms in North Africa there that had always been different. And, and yet – and they're making no headway whatsoever. And they're fighting over the oil basin in the middle. And you have America on both sides. You have um, the Turks and the Italians and the Americans backing the Tripoli government. You have the Qataris and the Saudis and the Americans and the Russians backing the Haftar faction in Benghazi which is funny. Now they switched. Now you have the more secularists in the East and the Islamists in Tripoli uh, going the other direction. Anyway, the whole thing's a disaster. It's been a disaster. They've been fighting and tens of thousands of people have been killed. I don't know about hundreds, but certainly tens of thousands of people have been killed in relatively low level, but still horrific civil war this whole time now, 10 years on.
1: And at the same time, the other disaster lays in Syria,
0: Um, Oh, and and Mali too. And the war spread right down into Mali and into West Africa as well.
1: In in that respect, um, this is the one area that I find to be uh, quite underreported. And it's something that I've come across uh, on internet forums um, in regards to the the progressive mindset regarding uh, the Biden administration, the current Biden administration, and his uh, relationship with foreign policy in the Middle East in, in, you wrote in the book in chapter 10 about Syria and mm-hmm. I want to I touch on this. Um, it was leaked to the New York Times that the Obama administration with support from King Abdul of Jordan and Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel that CIA Director David Petraeus who you talked about previously laid out the groundwork for full military support using Saudi connections to Islamist factions such as the, as you write in the book, the Northern Storm Brigade, the Harakat azam and the Shal Islam, all auxiliaries under the ultra-Orthodox Wahhabi sect, Jabha, Jabhat al-Nusra. Mm-hmm. The operation was codenamed Timber Sycamore. Uh, could you explain a bit further about this uh, operation, which yeah. most people don't even know what this operation entails?
0: Yeah, so it started in 2011. Timber Sycamore wasn't until 2013. The original um authorizations for obama were essentially for the cia to coordinate with the allies and hold off on american weapons yet but coordinate and especially with you know this whole uh, operation with the qataris shipping weapons and men from libya onto the war in syria then after benghazi in 2000 the benghazi attack not the fake hoax to start the war but the one year later uh killing of the ambassador after that they called off The the Americans, at least, call off their participation in the Libya pipeline and instead started working on getting weapons from Eastern Bloc countries like Bulgaria and so forth. And so essentially the whole thing was being run by the CIA, working with the Saudis and the Qataris from the very beginning, and of course the Jordanians and the Turks as well to the north and south of Syria as the staging ground for all of this. I'm not exactly certain when Israel began to intervene, but it's an absolute fact, and it's finally, after years and years of denials, it was finally admitted by their intelligence chiefs that not only did they provide uh, money and medical care for wounded al-Nusra and other, um, you know, Sunni side of the fight fighters, but that they gave them weapons and training and paid their salaries and ran their groups for years. Um, So they were a huge part of it, too. And essentially, this is again, this is because the clean break strategy in Iraq backfired so badly in empowering Iran in Iraq. They said we got to make up for that with a consolation prize in Syria. So now we're going to essentially hijack the Arab Spring and use it for our own ends. Al-Qaeda, from Iraq, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had been decimated by the Sunni tribes in 2005 and 6, or well, 6 and 7, was resuscitated. It came right back to life again. They'd been completely marginalized, um, not by David Petraeus in the Sunni awakening, but before that, and really but by those same Sunni tribes. And after Bush and Petraeus had helped create Al-Qaeda in Iraq, a land that had never seen a suicide bombing before, where there were no Al-Qaeda before, And turned the entire western half of that country into Jihadi University for eight years there. The local Sunni population took care of the problem for us. Like a miracle, honestly. You could have never hoped for such a wonderful thing. As the Sunni tribes basically saying, we don't like these Al-Qaeda guys. They're a lot more harm to us than good. And so they started shooting them in the head. And taking care of that problem. Now Obama comes in 2011. Takes the defibrillators brings al-qaeda in iraq right back to life again they come across the border into syria on the syrian side of the line they're moderate rebels on the syrian side of the line they just want democracy and peace and wonderfulness like everybody else now if you ask hillary clinton or david petraeus or leon panetta or um you know any of the people involved in this policy they will tell you look man we know there were al-qaeda guys there we weren't trying to back al-qaeda guys don't be silly we wanted to back the moderates and we wanted to back them so much that they would marginalize the jihadists, and the jihadists wouldn't be able to compete, and we would have – if we gave them enough support, we would have an army of moderates that um, you know, could take on all comers and create a wonderful new democratic Syria. Except the thing is that they knew that wasn't true. They knew, as Obama later told Thomas Friedman – Which was clearly his position all along is why he didn't send in the B-52s the the way – I mean he did send in the naval air power and air force air power to Libya to bomb Qaddafi out of power. But he didn't dare do that in Syria. He was afraid to commit to a real regime change because he knew all along, as he told Thomas Friedman, the idea that there was an army of moderates in any way or anywhere in Syria prepared to inherit the power was, in his words, a total fantasy a total fantasy and the way he put it to um was this army of moderates would be expected to fight against the syrian state oh and there's supposed to be doctors and lawyers and pharmacists and teachers and just gentlemen from the neighborhood are supposed to be running this militia right like it's yorktown in 1776 right and um and then uh the uh the uh, as he put it to tom friedman they would be expected to hold off or defeat the syrian state their allies in hezbollah and the iranian irgc that came to help and of course he left out and they would also be expected to defeat all of the bin ladenite terrorists too right the other half of it the al-nusra front jay Shal islam and all of these other groups these suicide bomber head chopper terrorists al-nusra was just al-qaeda in iraq in syria um And they would be expected to fight all of these groups to create some new, you know, secular democracy there as a complete hoax. It always was. As Joe Biden later joked at Harvard in in a very important revealing speech about this stuff. He says, let me tell you something. There's no Thomas Jefferson or James Madison hiding behind a sand dune in Syria ready to take over and create a limited constitutional republic over there for us. Okay. It just doesn't exist. When Hillary Clinton went on CBS News and said, Look, I'm in al Zawahiri's endorsed the revolution in Syria. Are we supporting Al Qaeda in Syria? She said, Look, when we try to see to create a new government that can inherit the power in Syria um, that's prepared to do this, that we could rely on, we don't see that. Well, She was pushing for a hawkish position at that time. She still had one more full year in power pushing for exactly what she was arguing against there. But in that interview, she was being forced to defend Obama's position. And so she's telling the truth. We could could end up fighting a war that benefits al-Qaeda. We don't want to do that. And when you say, well, which Syrians could we turn it over to instead? We don't know the answer to that. What a very frank response from Hillary Clinton. And guess what? She said that three days after the first Big Friends of Syria meeting, where they brought in the Syrian National Council that, guess what, had been created by Liz Cheney when she worked in the State Department in the Bush years, which was led by the Muslim Brotherhood. And Hillary Clinton and the group met with them and said, these clowns can't be the new government of Syria. This is never going to work. So when she gave her statement to CBS News, February 27, 2012, that when we look at For an organized opposition to inherit the power? We don't see that. She was saying that three days after meeting with the guys who supposedly were going to inherit the power. Okay, that was an honest answer about what are we even doing here? And the answer was, we have no idea. Powell doctrine be damned. There is no end game. We're just going to see how much worse we can make matters and let it go from there. And so with admitted reluctance. Obama gave enough support to cause a five-year civil war, six-year civil war, that killed something like a half a million people, that led to the rise of the bin Ladenite Islamic State, which temporarily erased the border between Iraq and Syria, the caliphate that, just like Zawahiri said, the Americans will never let you create your Islamic State, we got to get rid of the far enemy first. Baghdadi said I don't want to listen to you Zawahiri you can make your law but you can't enforce it watch me now he makes his own caliphate then what happens Obama and Trump come in and proves Zawahiri right you can't create your caliphate until you're done getting the Americans all the way bankrupted and all the way out of the way which again of course back then they only had 400 men and could have never dreamed of doing in a million years it took Bush's Iraq war II and obama's war in syria to create the islamic state for these guys the islamo-fascist caliphate of glenn beck's ridiculous propaganda of the bush years and bin laden's wildest dreams hiding in his attic where was he going to put his caliphate there were nation states everywhere in the way and the americans got rid of that and solved that problem for them and then what happened of course adam right once the caliphate's risen up and created in Syria and Iraq, then Obama has to launch Iraq War III to destroy it because that was too much. As John Kerry admitted on a secret recording that, well, we saw the rise of ISIS and we thought we could manage. We thought that they would put pressure on Assad to step down, but they didn't do that. They didn't go west to Damascus. They went east into western Iraq and then, of course, the Russians came to protect Assad. And, and as Kerry puts it, the Russians were trying to prevent a Daesh government. In other words, Kerry's admitting ISIS was going to conquer Damascus and take it over if the Russians hadn't stopped them. We thought that by supporting ISIS, we saw the rise of it. Oh, no, only our allies supported them. We thought we could manage that this would pressure Assad to step aside but does that make any sense i'll get back to iraq in just a second but does that make any sense like let's say it's the american civil war and the french and the british start tilting toward the confederacy and arming the confederacy to be able to better resist abraham lincoln's northern union army now when abraham lincoln finds out about this does he resign and let the british pick his replacement no in fact you know what he did He called the Russians for help. That did happen in the the American war between the states. The French and the British did start tilting toward the South. And Abraham Lincoln called the Russians. And the Russians sailed ships into New York Harbor and San Francisco Harbor to protect them from the Confederacy and to threaten full-scale war against the British and the French if they intervened any further or overtly on the side of the South. That's what Lincoln did. He asked the Russians to come and save him. Well, that's the same thing Bashar al-Assad did. I mean, imagine this. Imagine Abraham Lincoln resigning. Well, the British are backing the Confederacy. I guess I have to resign and let them pick my replacement now. Is that the most crazy thing you ever heard in your life? If the British had said that, well, you better resign now. I would have just been greeted with confusion and laughter. Like, what are you even talking about? That doesn't make any sense at all. You threaten Assad that, hey, guess what, Assad? You're the only thing standing between the status quo and Baghdadi ruling Damascus and murdering every Druze and every Shiite and every Alawite he can find, and every Christian that he can find. Right? So you better step down, dude. Huh? And then as Kerry says, he didn't do that. He did what Abraham Lincoln did. He called the Russians for help. And the Russians came in and saved him. But now, so this thing blew back, as Kerry was saying, it blew back further into Western Iraq. And at that point, then they had to launch Iraq War Three. And then guess what? Of course, they took the side of the same Shiite government they wish they hadn't created in Iraq War II. It's Shiite army that... David Petraeus built out of the Bada Brigade that he wished he hadn't, and the so-called Iranian-backed Shiite militias that are also allied with that same Iraqi government that Bush created in Iraq War II. And the reason we had done all of this in Syria was to try to spite Iran for winning the Iraq War. And now here we are fighting another war for them again in order to make up for the consequences Of our previous intervention. And so, especially in the case of the Battle of Tikrit, I got quotes in the book of an Iranian on the ground saying, I got to admit, we couldn't do it without the Americans flying air cover for us. And I got Americans admitting that, yeah, it's true. We're basically flying as Iran's air force in Tikrit right now, working together. And so, this is the whole reason they backed al-qaeda in syria in the first place was because they wished they hadn't backed these shiite factions in iraq war ii and now here they were backing them in iraq war three again uh to, in order to liberate western iraq from the islamic state and leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of more people and including when i say iraq war three that includes in eastern syria as well and the alliance with the syrian kurds to roust isis out of raqqa and deir and all of that and so um uh and then now they even say over and over again, you, you remember 2018 and 19, Donald Trump tried to get us out of Syria. And in both cases, the government overruled him. And in both cases, it was clear. They cried, screaming, bloody murder about the Kurds, but they didn't mean it. It was obvious. And, and you know, in the video series um, that we did about this, uh, if you look at the Syria chapter, we throw up, you know, story after story after story after story from 2018 of, Trump's leaving Israel in the lurch. Because guess what? Now Iran has more power and influence in Syria than ever before. And so now if Donald Trump pulls the last of the troops out, Iran's position in Syria will be so much stronger and Israel will be in jeopardy. And so the Israelis insist the Americans must stay at the al air base or, or not air base, but the Al-Tamf military base on the border of on the Syrian side of the border between Iraq and Syria, there, in order to close and prevent this, used to be Saddam Hussein's job to serve as the roadblock on what they call the land bridge in other words, the highway system that runs from Tehran through Baghdad, through Damascus, and on to Beirut. And since, as the Israelis and their partisans constantly put it, Syria is the keystone in the arc of shiite power in the region america must stay to play the role that saddam hussein used to play in blocking that arc of power and until america got rid of him because these very same pro lakut israel partisans said getting rid of saddam hussein would weaken iran's position in the region instead of strengthening it strengthening it which completely has backfired and led us to this
1: My final question to you is twofold. um, And it's going to uh, entertain your personal thoughts on the matter. And in my experience in studying U.S. Middle East affairs, it it seems that the U.S.-Israeli-Saudi nexus has been at war with former Pan-Arab nations that once prospered. Uh, countries like uh, Syria, Libya, Egypt, Iraq, Afghanistan, Uh, the ideology promoted by former president, Egyptian president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Um, These countries now are destabilized under the uh, former uh, agendas that we spoke about today Uh, and also are under the threat of these radical ultra-Orthodox fundamentalists that were kept at bay for many decades by Pan-Arabism. Was this something you have noticed while writing the book? And in my follow-up question, uh, what do you hope for the future regarding your books, in regards to what would you like to see from the public in regards to your books and hopes of um, educating the mass public about this seemingly uh, misreported, underrepresented uh, U.S. Middle East foreign policy by the legacy media.
0: All right, well, I definitely have a lot to say about the second question there, but I'm not exactly clear on the first one. What exactly was the first one asked? Well,
1: the the first question basically is my, uh, my, what I see as the, the transformation of former pan-Arab states like mm-hmm. Iran, like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya. They were once prosperous nations, mm-hmm. decades and decades uh, in the early 20th century. These are now destabilized regions, mm-hmm. um, uh, which are now at the behest or the threat of radical fundamentalists. While writing your book, was this mm-hmm. something that you noticed?
0: Oh, sure. Well, um Yes, and I think mostly this is not deliberate. Now, I know that there are Israeli strategists in the past who have recommended a policy of just smashing all Arab states. Mm-hmm. Um, this goes back to uh, Jacob Zabatinsky, one of the leaders, uh, you know, one of the founders of Zionism back 100 years ago and so forth. Um, and then famously, there's something called the Oded Yanan Plan, mm-hmm. Uh, from 1981, which is completely bonkers, by the way, if you read it, it's a lot of fun. It's about how the Soviet Union is about to conquer the whole world, and Israel will be left alone uh, in a region surrounded by Soviet-backed, hostile Arab enemies, and um, the world will be descended into total darkness, and then at that point, the Israelis will have no choice but to you know, scatter all of their enemies into a thousand little pieces and, and break all the nation states into warring little tribal statelets and so forth. um but of course that can all be a lot more harm than good right? i mean they the israelis have a perfectly good relationship with a stable dictatorship in egypt and in jordan. they could have negotiated in good faith with syria all along if they were willing to give up you know give back the Golan heights that they stole. um and uh you know as far as the lebanese i mean there's no reason to think that Hezbollah has any intention whatsoever of building itself up into an army capable of invading and occupying Northern Israel or anything like that. They are, they have a defensive force, a deterrent force to keep Israel out. And so they could have peace with all of their neighbors. This could be easy, you know, and, and, you know, it's true. There's a lot of resentment about 1948, but at the same time, 1948 was a long time ago. And, uh, generations go by and it is a done deal if they would only give the palestinians independence on the west bank and gaza strip or give them equal citizenship and freedom within the israeli state um, and you know treat them as just regular citizens of a secular government then so much of this controversy would just you know evaporate it doesn't really have to be this way at all we can The clean break was stupid. They should have gone with Oslo and better. They should have really given the Palestinians independence and tried to reach a peace with their neighbors in good faith. And, um, you know, really listening to the Israelis and their partisans in this country has helped us screw up everything. But when it comes to, like, Iraq War II, I do think – I really honestly believe that they thought it was going to be easy – it wasn't supposed to be okay. It'll be a terrible disaster, and a million people will die. But we'll succeed in breaking the country into three factions and sectarian cleansing, and this and that. Now, I do think that actually there are probably some cynics in there who thought that this is a, a good second place. If we're not going to get a Hashemite king or Ahmed Chalabi to, uh, or you know, some easy sock puppets to rule the country for us, then yeah, divide them and conquer them is second place. For that although even like if you look at the sunni turn in iraq in 2007 where petraeus and them launched the awakening and started back in the sunnis for a time and attacking muqtada al-sadr during that time um the uh petraeus i i don't think that that was like a cynical policy to like truly complete the sectarian cleansing for the Shia in a way, like they're tilting back toward the Sunni at the same time. So they did complete the sectarian cleansing for the Shiites. But I'm just saying that doesn't seem like it lines up very well with a policy of trying to empower the, the Sunni Arabs, you know, very well. But at the same time, Petraeus, I think, was being honest when he was telling the Sunni tribes that, look, I'm going to do everything I can to get the new government to give you guys jobs to give you patronage, to, give, you know, to share the oil money with the tribes, to hire young men to serve in the security services and the police forces and all of this, and essentially bribe them into joining the government. The problem was he didn't have any leverage to do that. He'd already won the war for the supermajority who didn't need us and had no need to compromise with the defeated 20% minority that they had already vanquished. And so... Um, I think he would have preferred – I think the policy would have – I think they they would have preferred that the Sunnis had a share of the power in the parliament, that the surge would have been able to work to create those political reconciliations, that they could solve their problems through parliamentary procedure instead of war. But it's just a fantasy. It's never going to happen. There's no reason in the world – the Shia had no reason in the world – to do no incentive in the world, you know, never mind having a good heart whatsoever, but and, and like good sportsmanship for, you know, their vanquished, defeated countrymen in the Civil War or anything like that. But Petraeus, uh, Petraeus had deprived them of the very last incentive to deal. At the time that they fired Rumsfeld in 2006, Rumsfeld was saying, let's take the training wheels off of this thing. Let's kick these guys off of welfare and see if they can stand on their own. If they're going to have a democracy, We got to like have a little trial by fire here and see if they can figure out how to do this. Well, that was at the end of 06. That was before Petraeus came in and finished the sectarian cleansing of Baghdad. That was when Petraeus essentially deprived them of their very last incentive to compromise and then said, please compromise. And they kind of laughed him out of the room. And that was it. But I think it's probably not the case that that was because the Israelis were behind that and saying he 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 we're playing chess and we know all these moves and we're going to make sure this works well and all of that i mean again when sistani called for one man one vote in january of 2004 that was it
1: that
0: was it israelis aren't in control at that point anymore the americans aren't in control anymore at that point it's the shiite supermajority in alliance with iran are in the catbird seat. They get to dictate how everything is going to play out. And then look, the Iranian plan and their puppets plan in Iraq was not to lord it over the Shia, over the Sunnis. It was to kick the Sunnis out of the capital city, consolidate this strong federal system where they get Iraqi Shia stand in, from Baghdad down to Basra and over to Iran and in alliance with the Kurds in the north and screw the Sunnis. Let them burn in the sun. Right, they had minor garrisons in Fallujah, Ramadi, Mosul, Tikrit, and and some of these other towns. You know, in the in the predominantly Sunni West, they weren't trying to enforce a totalitarian Shiite state on them. They just left them to burn in the sun. We got all the oil down in the south and up in the north, and we got the capital city. So what are you going to do about it? Nothing. But then of course that meant, and that was you know Maliki's government, especially Bush and Iran's compromise. Prime minister and then that of course meant that western iraq was wide open for the taking by the islamic state because if the shia aren't going to rule over them and the bathas aren't allowed to rule over them and the tribal leaders aren't allowed to create their own kind of separate state there and the sunni uh, tribal chiefs in the parliament can sit in the parliament but have no real power to deliver for their people whatsoever well you have what they call a power vacuum a massive one And it was one that then the Islamic State guys were able, after Obama took their side in Libya for five years, four years, were able to consolidate and grab for their own. And um, so anyway, I forgot what the question was. No,
1: the the question was um, – Oh, yeah, it wasn't – I don't
0: think it was deliberate. I don't think it was deliberate like let's just all smash them. But okay, so like take Syria for example. Uh, At the end of Iraq War III, they have a situation where – They essentially admitted Obama was too afraid. Trump had no interest in overthrowing, truly overthrowing Assad and seeing what happens next. But we can't just let him win either, can we? So our friends, the Turks, keep and protect the al-Qaeda guys in the Idlib province in the northwest. And the Americans occupy the east in alliance with the Syrian Kurds to really prevent the Syrian Kurds from making a separate peace with the Damascus government. And to occupy the wheat and the oil fields, in other words, the food and money fields for the country to keep them as part of this massive economic war and sanctions um, uh, situ- uh, you know, a regime against them. They've still got the Kurds. I don't know if they're really ruling over Raqqa, but at least they rule it from the outskirts. Um, which is an Arab town far south of traditional Syrian Kurdistan. So we're just picking a bunch of fights for the Syrian Kurds to have to deal with later when we eventually finally do leave. Um, And so, you know what? It sure looks like now they're settling for, yeah, keep them under sanctions, keep them broken up in small pieces, keep American troops in the east just to keep it out of the control of the government in the west in the case of Syria. And, um, you know, I think uh, it's, it certainly has worked out in a way that Oded Yanan would recognize as not too far off from what he was going for, uh, whether that was really what they had in mind or not. I'll tell you what, man, you know how the worst son of a bitch in the world on Twitter is Joshua Marshall? from the Talking Points Memo. Don't you hate that guy? He's just the worst, okay? But I'll tell you what, man. He wrote this article way back when called Practice to Deceive. And he has quotes. In fact, I think I neglected to quote this in the book. This should have gone in the book. Now that I think about it. I put him in the the appendix. Um, But there's a quote. I'm almost certain it's in Practice to Deceive. Where Richard Pearl or one of these guys says something to the effect of, and you know what? If it doesn't work out and it just leads to chaos and disorder, well, then that'd be okay too. You know, mm. it's kind of the default position there.
1: Where, where, where did you, where, in, in writing these books?
0: Uh, I'm sorry? Latest
1: book, in writing your latest book. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, yeah. What am I going there, for yeah, with that? Yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. I'm trying to end the wars, man. You know, I um in Fool's Air in the first book it was chapter two of this book that got completely out of control. It turned into a whole book, and probably at state college it could have got me a PhD, like not a not a really fancy one, but like there's thirteen hundred citations in there. It's complete overkill on the proof of everything I claim in the Afghanistan book. In this book, I didn't use any footnotes at all. In this book, I put sourcing in the text wherever I think it's really necessary, but otherwise it's written from the tone of Trust me, believe me now, know it later when you look it up, double check my facts, email me if you can't find it, I'll help you. But instead of bogging you down with numbered footnotes throughout the text, I decided that, and instead of bogging down and writing 300 pages about each war, I decided that what I would do would be to try to tell as much as I think you really need to know, but not more about everything the iranian revolution the iran iraq war iraq war one iraq war one and a half and the rise of al-qaeda and then afghanistan iraq somalia pakistan libya syria and then mali and yemen and the rest everything and and do it in a way where you can kind of come with me on here's where we started with jimmy carter Here's how one crisis led to the next, led to the next, led to the next intervention all the way through. And and here's why we're doing what bin Laden always wanted us to do, by bogging ourselves down in these goat rope affairs, as Jeff Huber called them, uh, and getting nowhere. Um, And that our government is responsible for the massive sectarian war in the region now. We're First, they took the side of their regional adversary, and so ever since then, they've been on the side of our actual enemies, these blood-soaked terrorists who slaughtered American civilians in order to make up for the fact of their terrible war. And then by the end of the thing, you're supposed to get it. By the end of the thing, you're supposed to agree with me that we just have to call this off. If you give George Bush a writ to kill 100 men or 400 men, he will kill a million and his successor will kill another million, and his successor will kill another half a million people. And on we go, fighting wars most of the time now for the terrorist factions, uh, the bin Ladenites, against their Shiite enemies. And so therefore, if that's right and it is, then we just have to call it off. The national security state will not fight a war against terrorism for us. They will only do what they wilt and consequences for the American people, the British, and whoever else be damned. And so that's it. We have to shut them down. They are not our security force. They are our enemy, just the same as they are Bin Laden's, as Michael Scheuer put it, indispensable ally. And so we must withdraw all support for this effort. It's been 20 years. That's enough. And – The way the book is written is meant to be not for my audience, but for my audience to give to their people, your friends and family, your co-workers, regular Joes. Now, honestly, Adam, I really wanted it to be 150 pages. I wanted you to be able to give this to your Uncle Bob and be like, look, Uncle Bob, it's just 150 pages. okay? you got no excuse, but there's no way I could do 15 words in 150 pages. So it turned into 300 anyway. But. The comments say it's an easy read. It's, it's quick and easy, and it's easy to understand for such a complicated subject that, yes, we get it. We're doing bin Laden's dirty work for him. Yes, we get it. We're fighting on the side of the Shiites and on the side of the bin Ladenites. Yes, we get it. Saudi and Israel's interests are not the interests of the American people, even though for some reason they are paramount in Washington, D.C., and our interests have to take a back seat. And all of these things, those themes come true, come through in the book. And by the end of the book, you got to admit it. That's what it's for. And, and then what I'm trying to do now, I've been very caught up sending them to donors to the Libertarian Institute And, and, you know, friends and family and people who help contribute to the book and all of these things. I don't have a mail room here. I'm a kind of a one man show as far as that goes. But the next project like this weekend and into next week is to send hundreds of books out to as many media media people as I possibly can in the country to every middle ranked newspaper to every AM radio show host to I want to send a box of 10 to every decent peace group in the country so that the leaders of their group can all read it. And, um, you know, maybe the six best congressmen and their staff and, you know, anything I can do, any ideas other people have for how to promote this book. You know, the institute, my, my nonprofit, Libertarian Institute, we have boxes and boxes of books that we bought for just this purpose of promotion. And we don't have a big marketing department or anything like that. We're not gonna be able, you know, it's on the Barnes and Noble website but it's very unlikely it's going to be in Barnes & Noble brick-and-mortar stores across the country and that kind of thing. It's a you know published by my little old institute. It's available on a lot of different websites. But we essentially need grassroots help from everybody who's interested in this and trying to push this. Because at the end, sorry my long answer, what I want out of this book, Adam, I want people to say, you know, there's this new book out that says that we don't have to do this. It doesn't have to be this way. It never did and we could just quit. Here it is, it's blue. It's called enough already, have it. It's 300 pages, but it's an easy read. You'll kill it in two days and and you'll be good and you'll be set and then pass it on to your buddy. And that's what I really want. I want, I mean, as an an economist, I'm a great anti-war guy, right? But essentially what I can attempt to do here is move the margin a tiny little bit, right? That empire weakens America. Empire doesn't strengthen America. Empire is murder-suicide. Empire is what is wrong with our society. It's the worst thing about us. And it's what causes so much of the economic problems and all of the rest of the dissension, the militarization of our police, and all of the things that are causing the worst social crises in our society is because we abandon our republic to embrace world empire. And It's just got to stop. There's no reason to believe in it. The fact that you and I are having this conversation in March of 2021 means that I'm right and everybody who disagrees is wrong. Period. How in the hell can it take 20 years to kill 400 men? How can it be? How could anyone think that Dick Cheney or David Petraeus are being honest men when they say yes, we're going to have to confront this terrorist enemy? for our the rest of our lifetimes and our kids and our grandkids lifetimes yeah really as long as we keep working with saudi arabia to back these mercenary terrorists around the world then yes they're going to exist otherwise that's a load of crap otherwise look at a map the world is covered in nation states those are that means a monopoly on violent power that's why there was no al-Qaeda in Iraq before America invaded, because if there had ever tried to be, Saddam Hussein would have killed them. Look at what happens when bin Ladenites poke their head up in the Gaza Strip. This happened like five times. Some preacher comes out and goes, yeah, I'm an al-Zawahiri. That's who I like. Next thing you know, Hamas's custom brigade comes and massacres them. They don't even get hanged from ropes. They get machine gunned to death in their mosque by Hamas. This is our strip, not yours. That's what it means to have a monopoly on force. If America would just knock it off, let the Taliban and whoever their new coalition partners are rule Afghanistan. Let whoever rule let the Baathists rule syria let the shia and the tribal sunni leaders rule iraq none of them have an interest in supporting al-qaeda the only groups that have an interest in supporting al-qaeda are the saudis when they know that the americans are there to clean up their mess and they want to use them against their enemies like the syrians but you think the saudis are going to tolerate al-qaeda guys coming home to saudi arabia they're terrified of these guys that treat them just like this Shia and crucify them in an instant if they have to or find another war to send them off to somewhere else. But without the Americans involved and from 1979 on, this has been an American Saudi joint condominium here supporting these terrorist groups. With the very early days of the war on terrorism, I guess the first couple of years of Obama as the exceptions, the rest of the time fighting for these guys all along, all through the 80s, all through the 90s and through most of the 2010s and uh, up until this day where they're again, they're protected by our allies, the Turks, where, where Biden just scored a goal on behalf of ISIS in Syria two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, a minor one, but symbolically important, right? For who's fighting, who's zooming who here, as Aretha Franklin would say. Um, and so um that's the point of the book, is enough already. That's it. And you know, a lot of people told me they hated that title. I just couldn't think of a better title. And now I love it. I'm so glad that I did call it that and didn't go with any of the other suggestions because that is the point of the book. And of course, like it's a lie, right? Just like Fool's Air in time to end the war in Afghanistan. It's not a 300-page case for leaving Afghanistan. It's a 300-page history of the war in Afghanistan. Right? This is not a 300-page case for let's end the war on terrorism. This is me just telling you the story of the history of the war on terrorism. By the time we get to the end, time to end the war on terrorism, that's the last three pages right and if you ain't convinced by then well screw you man i don't know what to say (laughs) right but but so the title is misleading the book is not a polemic about this is why war is wrong right this is a an alternative history of the war on terrorism since 79 and by the time you're done reading it you'll know i'm right you want to give it to your right-wing uncle bob and convince him to I mean, hey, Donald Trump said it. Donald Trump said going to the Middle East was the worst mistake any American president ever made, ever. The worst decision. Now, that's not true. Woodrow Wilson getting into World War One was far worse. But still, man, that's some powerful talk from a Republican presidential candidate and president. He ran on repudiating W. Bush's legacy in the Middle East. And thank God for that. It's the most important thing that Donald Trump ever did. Because it means that whenever we talk to the right, we can say, look, Donald Trump said this is the worst thing we ever did. And he's right. You can't deny it, man. It is. It's wrong. And we have to stop it. And I honestly, man, I think that the American people, I mean, the polls show the American people agree with me already, us, right? But it's not a priority we got to make it a priority. We have to bring this back to people's attention, put it back on their radar. Is this something we're still doing? Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, we're still in all these countries? Really? People say it to me. We're at war in five countries right now? Yeah, we are. And that's intolerable. We have to stop it. And they agree with that, but it's just a matter of putting it, back on their list of things that must be done and and frankly for all the crises that our countries face how can we ever begin to make things right until we abandon the world empire we just can't we just can't and so it's got to be step one
1: the book is enough already time to end the war on terrorism scott horton thank you very much for coming on
0: absolutely thank you Uh, thank you both very much for having me appreciate it
1: thank you